You're listening to the Paleo NP podcast, episode number 35. Head on over to the shop page, that's marthaflorence.com slash shop, or you can find the link in the show notes where you'll be able to find products and services that I've tested and love. And when you shop through me, you're not only directly supporting this show so that I can continue to provide great content for free, but you can also know that I've done the work for you to find the best options out there for anyone who's looking to improve their health from the inside out and the outside in. So head on over to marthaflorence.com shop and get started optimizing your health and performance now. Welcome to the Paleo NP Podcast. I'm Martha, a family nurse practitioner and creator of MarthaFlorence.com. I live in Anchorage, Alaska with my boyfriend and fur children. I'm here to share my take on integrative health, nutrition, and fitness, answer your questions, and talk with health and wellness experts. You can submit your questions at MarthaFlorence.com. Enjoy this week's episode. Remember that the materials and content within this podcast are intended as general information only and are not to be considered a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. I've got a lot to talk about today, so I will be quick with the front matter here. Most importantly, look or listen for some changes to this podcast. It's not going away and I'm not changing the format, but I'm doing a little bit of rebranding and tweaking and I'm hoping to release some shorter episodes, like less than 10 minutes with bits of super practical information or maybe even key takeaways or highlights from longer episodes. I'm not entirely sure if those are going to be part of this podcast or if I'll keep them separate, but anyway, I do it. I will let you know so that you guys can be sure to get in on all of that action. So today I want to talk about diets, not fad diets or quick weight loss solutions because those don't work and you should stay away from them, but diets in the sense of the food that we eat. Specifically, I want to talk about finding your perfect diet, so nutrition that is personalized to you. How do you find that? Not looking for the diet that helped your friend Joe lose 20 pounds by putting half a jar of coconut oil in his coffee every morning. Not the vegan diet that helped your mom transform herself into a completely new person. And not the all-steak diet that your cousin went on and that cured her chronic illness. I'm talking about the diet that specifically works for you. Roger Williams wrote a book called Biochemical Individuality, and in it he talks about how there's actually no such thing as an average person. We're all unique, both biologically and genetically, and he also discusses that these so-called bad genetics that we talk about don't actually cause disease on their own. Nutrition and environment play a huge role in that. I look at this as genetics loads the gun and the environment pulls the trigger. I can't take credit for that actual statement. I don't know where it came from, but I've adopted it and I use it all the time. So your genetics determine what is going to go wrong when it happens, but the environment that your genetics are in, so your body, the food you eat, the toxins you're exposed to, your habits, your emotional state, all of those things are what determines when that thing is going to go wrong and it will happen eventually. This plays a role not only in disease and illness, but also in the way that you eat and what supplements you do or don't need to take. There are some people who don't really need to supplement with vitamin C or even some B vitamins because they have a specific strain of bacteria in their gut that produces these vitamins for them from the food that they eat. There are also people who would 
be in danger if they supplemented with vitamin D because they overproduce calcium and phosphorus when they consume a lot of vitamin D. I actually have a patient who has a condition that makes it dangerous for her to supplement with vitamin D even though her levels are quite low. But then at the same time, there are a lot of people, mostly people who have darker skin, who aren't actually able to even produce vitamin D from the sun very well. Or people with a genetic variant that hinders vitamin D production and without supplementation, these people can have some serious health issues because they are severely vitamin D deficient. So it kind of blows my mind that based on the amount of biochemical individuality that exists, that there are thousands or even hundreds of thousands of books and programs out there that promise to have the solution for everything from weight loss to overcoming carb cravings to building muscle to fixing your skin. When the truth is the keto diet that helped your friend Joe look like a bodybuilder could result in serious negative health consequences for you. And to quote the book I mentioned earlier, Biochemical Individuality, genetic influences are far better understood now than in 1956 from major nutrition-related problems such as alcoholism, heart disease, diabetes, hypertension, and cancer. Yet we seem frustratingly slow to integrate this knowledge into clinical practice and common knowledge. Most clinicians still treat and write about these problems as if inborn differences are unimportant. Professional and lay authors still recommend restrictive diets they assume are best for nearly everyone. They debate heatedly about which one of the conflicting diets is right, high-carb, low-carb, vegetarian, high-protein, etc., when we all automatically consider that all of these diets likely have merit, but only for some individuals. So if you've ever tried to follow a diet from a book and failed and then thought that maybe you just didn't have the willpower to make it happen, it's actually probably because your biochemical individuality didn't jive with whatever the diet was and your body is trying to save you. Let's just dive right into this and start by talking about the ketogenic diet. First, let's consider that while our ancestors may have technically been keto, they did not get into ketosis by eating copious amounts of fat or using exogenous ketones. They were essentially fasting and in some cases even starving themselves into ketosis, and the ability to burn fat was actually a survival mechanism. In our current modern times, we've learned that the ability to burn fat for fuel is good for most of us. But we've also learned other ways to access it that doesn't include fasting or starving. If we are supplementing our way into ketosis, in my mind, that is the same as taking a pill for something. The most important point here is that no matter how you get into ketosis and no matter how many people claim that it will solve all of the world's problems, the truth is that there are some people who can actually suffer more harm than good by following a ketogenic diet. There's definitely more nuance to it than this, but my point is that keto isn't good for everyone. There are people who have a condition called familial hypercholesterolemia, which I will now on refer to as FH, because that's a mouthful of words there, and it affects about 10% of the population worldwide. And people who have this tend to end up with extremely high cholesterol levels when they eat a diet high in saturated fat. I'm not going to get into the nitty gritty about what to do about this either, but in the show notes, I'll link to a couple of articles and podcasts by Chris Masterjohn, where he talks about this specifically and what to do about it from a dietary perspective. So for someone with FH, eating a lower fat, higher carb diet that has plenty of polyunsaturated fats is best, something more like a Mediterranean diet with plenty of plants and olive oil. How do you know if you have FH? I will link to an article with the diagnostic criteria 
There's some genetic testing that you can do to determine if you have the specific genes, but you can also diagnose it based on LDL cholesterol levels and family history. Also, if you have ever been on a keto diet or eaten a lot of saturated fat and then had your cholesterol levels tested and they were extremely high or even much higher than they were prior to keto, then chances are good that you may have FH. So it turns out that no matter how many people on the internet tell you that everyone can do keto and that keto is good for everyone, there are people who don't thrive on a higher fat, lower carb diet and who are actually healthier on a lower fat, higher carb diet. Another example of this is related to omega-6 fatty acids. Omega-6s, much like omega-3s, are polyunsaturated fatty acids that are found in foods like eggs, poultry, nuts, seeds, and vegetable oils. Omega-6 is a precursor to molecules called eicosanoids. In general, when eicosanoids are derived from derived from omega-6s, they promote inflammation. And when they're derived from omega-3s, they're actually anti-inflammatory. The problem with omega-6s is disproportionately high intake compared to omega-3s. So eating foods that have omega-6s in them, like nuts, isn't a problem, but the problem arises when you eat too many omega-6 foods without a high intake of omega-3 foods. Here's where the biochemical individuality piece comes in. The process of converting omega-6s into inflammatory compounds, this is a process called elongation, is genetic. So in some people, this process is upregulated and causes a higher rate of conversion of omega-6s to inflammatory compounds. So if you are one of those people and you are consuming high volumes of foods like nuts and seeds or nut butters, which some people do on a ketogenic diet, I mean spoonfuls of peanut butter, anyone, then a significant portion of the linoleic acid from the nuts and seeds gets converted into arachidonic acid, which is a direct precursor to these inflammatory compounds. So in order to make sure that this doesn't happen, you either need to get rid of these common sources of omega-6 foods, so nuts, seeds, nut butters, possibly even limit your consumption of food like poultry and eggs, or if you do eat these foods, make sure that you're increasing your intake of omega-3 fatty acids from sources like cold water fish, so salmon, uh, tuna, herring, sardines. This is another thing that you can determine with a genetic test. Other good examples of biochemical individuality can be seen in the huge variations in blood sugar responses when eating foods like cookies or bananas or oatmeal. Rob Wolf talks about this in his book, Wired to Eat. We are led to believe that eating something like a banana is good for us and eating a cookie is bad for us. But the study that Rob talks about in his book, they looked at a they did a controlled dietary study and tested blood sugars of people after eating various sources of carbs. I believe they controlled for grams of carbs. So everyone ate 100 grams of carbohydrate from banana, 100 grams of carbohydrate from a cookie, etc. But what this study determined is that you can't predict the blood sugar response to any of these foods. So some people had a huge blood sugar increase with the banana and barely a blip with the cookie, and others were the complete opposite. So while I might do better with cookies as my source of carbs, ha, right, I wish, you might do better with bananas. I think Lily Nichols, who is a whole foods-based registered dietitian, just did an N equals 1 study on herself where she wore a continuous glucose monitor and did a similar experiment to what Rob talks about in his book. He also has a carb test that you can do that's detailed in his book, and I'll be sure to link to all of these things in the show notes. 
I'm not sure if Lily's experiences are published anywhere yet. I saw her post about it on Twitter, but I'll do some digging and see if I can find these things. Um, but her point was, you, you know, RDs are told that oatmeal is healthy and her blood sugar went crazy when she ate a bowl of oatmeal. Anyway, the point of all of this is that your specific genes and internal environment determine how you react to foods. So just because there's some arbitrary recommendation out there that bananas are better than cookies doesn't mean that that's true for you. I mean, from a nutritional perspective, yes, bananas are better than cookies. So if your blood sugar responds the same to both cookies and bananas, I would recommend choosing bananas because they have other beneficial micronutrients that are not found in cookies. There's also a project in Europe called Food For Me, and the study that they did looked at 1,500 participants who were given personalized dietary advice based on their genetic data, or there was another group that was told to follow some standard dietary guidelines, such as eating fruits and vegetables and lean meats and whole grains. And the people in the personalized diet group did much better eating based on their genetics rather than the standardized group. We also talked about coffee a few weeks ago, and that's another example of biochemical individuality. So those with the variant of the CYP1A2 gene, which is responsible for caffeine metabolism, have an increased risk of heart attack and hypertension if they consume more than two cups of coffee per day. Whereas the current dietary guidelines state that four or five cups of coffee per day is fine. So what does this all mean? It means that depending on your unique genetic makeup, your gut microbe, your health history, your environment, your family history, and even your emotional state, you may need to consume more or less of any given nutrient than others or than what is recommended. Please do not feel overwhelmed or discouraged by this because you can figure out a lot of this on your own and what you can't figure out on your own, you can get a genetic test for. Two other dietary approaches that are all the rage right now are the carnivore diet and veganism. I'm not going to talk about my specific thoughts about those on this episode. If you want to know my thoughts, you can listen to the podcast episode that I did with Melissa from Avocado Grove Nutrition. I will link to that in the show notes. We talked specifically about both the carnivore diet and veganism in that episode. But I do want to talk about some potential issues from a genetic standpoint. First, we need to get nerdy about methylation. Methyl groups, which is a carbon atom attached to three hydro that's got three hydrogen atoms attached to it are typically um, attached to larger molecules. And methylation is the process that occurs when a methyl group is taken from one compound and transferred to another. This process is responsible for turning genes on and off. So when your body has normal healthy methylation, the genes that you don't want, so those that code for things like cancer or autoimmune disease, those get turned off and the good helpful genes get switched on. Methylation is required for a lot of processes like cell division, detoxification, energy metabolism, neurotransmitter synthesis, and more. This means that when methylation isn't functioning as you want it to, things can go very wrong very quickly in your body. Undermethylation is when your body isn't able to transfer methyl groups appropriately or when you don't have adequate intake of foods or compounds that easily donate methyl groups. Overmethylation is when this process happens too easily or too frequently. One interesting thing about undermethylation is that it can actually cause people to be more susceptible to depression because methylation is involved in serotonin synthesis, and overmethylation is associated with things like anxiety, panic attack, and sleep disorders. So if you're an undermethylator or are prone to undermethylation, 
you would probably do pretty well eating more meat. Not necessarily full carnivore, but definitely a higher meat intake because you don't have enough methyl groups being transferred to places where you need them and muscle meat is a, has a high amount of methionine, which is a strong methyl donor. This would be especially true if you tend to consume higher amounts of plants and folate because those don't supply adequate amounts of methyl donors for an undermethylator. So if you're prone to undermethylation, a plant-rich diet that has no meat in it is not going to allow you to be optimally healthy. In fact, it might even cause you to be sick. But if you're prone to overmethylation, the very last thing that you need is to have a high intake of methyl donors like muscle meat. So this would be the person who would benefit more from a plant-based diet. You do still need to consume protein if you're an overmethylator, but becoming a carnivore where most of your plate is filled with meat, or all of your plate in some cases, is probably going to make you sick. Unfortunately, the only way to know which way things tend to go for you is to do a genetic test, though something like a Dutch hormone test can actually give you some clues because it does look at some of these pathways that are involved in with methylation. I'm not a huge fan of having lab testing to determine what you should and shouldn't be eating, but I do think that certain testing can tell us where there are holes that need to be filled. But I say that with the caveat that you do need to do some digging into understanding why those holes are there. So if you were deficient in B12, is it because your intake is low or because you've got the MTHFR mutation, which affects your vitamin B status? Or is it because you have gut dysbiosis or are lacking intrinsic factor, so no matter how much B12 you eat, you still aren't going to get it into your bloodstream adequately? But things like blood sugar, vitamin and mineral status, thyroid status, cholesterol, red blood cell, white blood cell levels, vitamin and vitamin D status can give us clues into the way that your diet is affecting your health. I do not like food sensitivity testing, and I've actually got a whole podcast episode about that, which I'll be sure to link to. The only situation where I think this is a really good idea is when you've been actively working on finding your perfect diet and you're still struggling with symptoms that don't seem to want to go away then it might be helpful to get some food sensitivity testing and see what it says, but I rarely, rarely do those. The other test that I've already mentioned that can be really helpful is the Dutch test. It's a great test for hormones, and it also tests some organic acids, which reflect micronutrient status. You can also get a more comprehensive organic acids test, which isn't something that I have a lot of experience with at this point, but I am looking to add it to what I do because I do think there's a lot of good information there. Okay. So now you understand what biochemical individuality is and you have a basic understanding of how you can go about learning some of these things about yourself. Now, what do you do with that information? I'm going to talk about some specific diets that solve some specific problems that you can DIY. I also have an online course where I walk you through the exact process that I go through with my patients because I go through this process all the time. This is probably the number one question that I get asked all the time. What should I eat? So if you feel like all of this information is completely overwhelming and you aren't really interested in getting any of this testing done and you need a little bit of accountability and some support through this process of figuring out what you should eat, then my course might be right for you. It's a completely self-paced course, but I've got a Facebook group that goes along with it where I'm providing some support and some direction and you get the support and hive mind of some of the other members of the course. So it can be really helpful in getting started and in keeping you going. I'll talk a little bit more about details um, as I discuss some of these other diets. I do want to mention that you should always choose real food first. If you've been listening to this podcast for any amount of time, you know that's how I feel. 
even if you're eating a low-carb keto diet or a paleo diet or a vegan diet and you've got this really great keto vegan-friendly green powder for your smoothie, you should always choose to eat the real food versions of what's in that powder first. Even if the ingredients are essentially the same, choose the real food and save the convenience and packaged foods for a time when you're in a hurry or you're traveling. And one other quick thing here is that any of these diets that I'm going to talk about are meant to be short-term solutions and to help you get a set of symptoms under control. And then they need to be adapted into something that fits with your overall lifestyle and is sustainable because a lot of these are really restrictive and not sustainable for long-term. If you have any gut or GI symptoms or your inflammation markers are high, then you need to follow some sort of protocol for anywhere from 4 to 12 weeks. And this is something that I talk about in my course. I would say ideally a minimum of 4 weeks, but honestly 12 weeks is better. And how long you have to follow this kind of protocol depends on how quote unquote sick you are. So the longer you've been dealing with some of these issues and is the longer it's going to take to get rid of them. So unfortunately, the only way to go about this is to be patient. One really great place to start if you've got any sort of chronic illness is the autoimmune paleo protocol. It's a very strict version of the paleo diet and it does eliminate a lot of foods, grains, dairy, eggs, nightshade vegetables, legumes, and I think nuts, seeds, coffee, and chocolate. I don't remember the full food list, but it's pretty extensive. It's a good place to start for people who are having, who have a lot of inflammation or have some sort of inflammatory condition and need to feel better. The problem that I have with it is that it's so restrictive and it's hard for a lot of people to stick to for the length of time that they need to in order to see any healing. The protocol that I start with in my Find Your Perfect Diet course eliminates some of the most common food triggers. So things like dairy, gluten, soy, and a few others. Because the goal with any of this is to decrease inflammation. But I also give you some options based on what you're dealing with. So I typically recommend that based on the AIP template, if you have an autoimmune disease, that you go beyond what I initially recommend and eliminate grains and a few other things right off the bat. Because that's what's going to get you the most healing in the shortest amount of time. So one other thing I like about AIP is the way that they reintroduce and test foods. So you eliminate all of these foods for 12 plus weeks. I think the book says that some people need to follow the elimination phase for up to six months or a year, depending on symptoms, which, while I agree with that, is so hard for a lot of people to do. So I actually have a different recommendation. So on AIP, you eliminate all of these foods and then you test them and look for symptoms. If you tolerate something, then you get to add that back into your diet. I found that asking people to restrict what they're eating for a really long time makes them more likely to not stick with something, even if they feel better. So I've modified my approach in the Find Your Perfect Diet course into a more phased approach where after your initial elimination period, you get to tweak and revisit some of the things. And then when you come out of this process, which actually takes a few months total, depending on how you do it, you've got all of the information that you need to know about what foods you should be eating and what foods you would be doing better to avoid. Another option would be a diet called the Specific Carbohydrate Diet, and this was originally designed as a way to manage celiac disease. So it's a gluten and grain-free diet. This would be a good place to start if you have IBS or any symptoms that are obviously brought on by grains or gluten. Another one that I actually really like, but can be hard to follow because it's got a lot of rules and steps, is the GAPS diet, which stands for Gut and Psychology Syndrome. And I think it was actually derived from the SCD diet. So that's the Specific Carbohydrate Diet. So I really like the theory behind it, but the barrier to entry is pretty high. I will link to a book that I like that makes this a little bit easier to follow, 
but I'd say that this is probably not the best place to start unless you're desperate, though it does focus on a lot of common inflammatory foods. So if you feel comfortable modifying it, then maybe it would be easier for you to do. If you want to start with just the basics, I would say that a super clean paleo diet is a good place to start or even a Whole30. I typically recommend a Whole30 to my patients when they need a way to get started with changing their diet, but for those patients who aren't necessarily complaining of any GI symptoms. I like the Whole30 because there are a lot of free resources online, so it's easy for folks to do it themselves. It's also a good option if you're really just looking for a place to start with cleaning up your diet and you need some rules to follow. Another one I really like is the WALS protocol. This is a really plant-centric, lower-carb paleo diet that focuses on getting tons of nutrients. This is a good place to start for anyone who has a serious or chronic health issue but doesn't necessarily suffer from any GI symptoms or um, GI distress. Uh, Terry Walls, who invented this protocol, essentially put her multiple sclerosis into remission with this diet, so it's pretty powerful. If you find yourself not tolerating plants very well, you can check out the Plant Paradox Diet. This essentially eliminates all lectins and significantly limits sugar. This is a good place to start if you want to focus on nutrient density, but your gut doesn't like green smoothies and piles of vegetables like you might find in something like the Walls Protocol. I will say that with any of these approaches, the Find Your Perfect Diet course included, the magic is in the reintroduction of food. I focus a lot of my course on this part and what you should look for when you're reintroducing foods and then how to take that information and use it in creating your perfect diet to serve you for the rest of your life. So what my course does that a lot of these other protocols don't do is helps you to bridge the gap between the protocol itself and real life because that's the hard part for most people, especially when some of the foods that make them feel terrible or give them symptoms are foods that they actually like and are having a hard time giving up, and we've all been there. I've also taken a lot of my favorite parts of many of these other approaches and incorporated them into my course, so I'm not prescribing you a specific list of foods that you can and can't eat. Instead, I'm helping you to figure out what your body does and doesn't like and what makes it feel good and what causes you to have symptoms or any sort of issues. So it turns into this mishmash of all of these things, and while I typically recommend that people avoid a lot of soy and potentially never eat gluten, I do talk about how to eat these things occasionally, such as special occasions, if you do tolerate them. It's all about making informed choices around food and understanding how it affects you so that you can eat in a way that supports your optimal health and performance. So hopefully this gives you a starting place, and if you're interested in the Find Your Perfect Diet course, I'll put a link in the show notes where you can sign up to be notified when I open registration again. I'm working on some updates and I think I'll probably be opening registration once a month or once every other month for now. And that's just so that I can be able to um, be sure to be able to provide plenty of support for those who are just getting started because that's when most of the questions pop up and kind of when people start to have trouble and struggle is right off the, right off the bat at the beginning. So it's definitely easier to manage if there's a bunch of people who are starting around the same time than it is to have people trickling in. So there will be a link in the show notes to be notified when registration opens. One other thing that I do want to point out is that while I am not a huge fan of the idea of a low-carb diet for everyone, I do think that minimizing the blood sugar roller coaster is ideal, and how you do this will vary from person to person. Going back to our discussion about how different carbohydrate sources affect different people, that matters a lot here. But also, if you're an athlete or a very active person, in general, you can probably eat more carbohydrates than someone who is sedentary. 
again, your genetics play a role in this. So if you're somebody who has FH, so that's familial hypercholesterolemia, that eating a lower carb diet might not be the best idea, but the carbs that you do eat should be nutrient-dense whole food carbs, not junky carbs like cookies and cereal. If you take the time to test your carb tolerance, as Rob Wolf lays out in his book, then you have actual data to back up your food choices, but a lot of people don't have the time or the resources or even the desire to do that. So in that case, I would encourage you to work on finding your own perfect diet, but making the base of that real whole foods, and then using the data that you gathered during that process to drive the choices that you make that deviate from your baseline of whole nutrient-dense foods. And this is, again, what I focus on in my course. So I'll use myself as an example. 80 to 90% of the time, my diet adheres pretty closely to a strict paleo template. I use that label because it's the easiest way to describe it. Once a week or so, I'll include rice in a meal, and occasionally, maybe once every other week, I'll make some sort of gluten-free treat. There are also a few vegetables that I haven't been eating lately because I've pinpointed them as the cause of some bloating and digestive distress, mostly FODMAPs in this case. So I've avoided them pretty intently for about the past month or two, and I have been adding small amounts of them back in a few times per week with no issues. When I go out to eat, I deviate from this template even more, but I also know where my tolerance for certain foods lies. So a gluten-free pizza once a month is fine, but eating cheese more than once a week or even every other week is a recipe for disaster. The point is that I know what my baseline template is and what makes me feel good. Right now, it's a low FODMAP paleo template. And I know where I can make choices that deviate from that baseline because I've done a lot of experimenting and tweaking and trying things out. So gluten-free pizza once a month and the occasional gluten-y food, maybe again once a month, doesn't cause me any grief. How do I measure this? A lot of people use weight as a way to measure their dietary success, and that's not at all the right approach. For me, it's my levels of fatigue. I struggle with chronic fatigue and Epstein-Barr virus, and after it got really, really bad a few years ago, I now have a gauge. If I go work out and I need a three-hour nap, or it takes me multiple days to recover from an easy workout, then things are not going well and something needs to change. If I sleep for eight hours at night and still can't get out of bed, drink too many cups of coffee, then pass out on the couch for three hours at two in the afternoon, I need to make some adjustments. And to be completely honest, it's mostly diet. As I was working on all of these things, I suddenly found that after napping every day at 2 p.m., I made it through one and then three days and then a whole week where I didn't absolutely have to have a nap. And I'm not talking like, oh, it would be nice to have a nap, but like can't keep your eyes open, absolutely have to have a nap. If you've ever been there, you understand. Sometimes it's hard to see these patterns and notice what's happening, which is why I always encourage people to keep a food and symptom journal. It's hard to notice these patterns based on your recall alone, so sometimes writing things down is helpful. So my point is that while it's important that you follow a diet that works for you and not one that worked for someone else, you also have to be willing to invest a little time and energy into the process in order to figure it all out because it is specific for you and no one else can tell you what that is. You have to figure it out yourself. I'm trying to give you some guidance here with some of this information and my e-course. The the goal of that is to help you and guide you through that process. Feel free to use any of the templates that I've talked about here and tweak those to work for you if you're good at following something that's laid out in a book. But if you feel like you could use a little bit more support and guidance and you want help with the process, then be sure to check out the Find Your Perfect Diet course. 
None of these are a quick fix. And even some of the specific diets that I talked about aren't a long-term solution, but more of a place to get started. But it's my goal with this course to help you find a diet that will work for you forever. And as things change, because they will as you get older, unfortunately, and as various other things in your life change, you will have the skills after going through this process and the ability to adapt what you are doing to your changing needs rather than having to move on to the next diet that might have worked for someone else. So this episode was much longer than I anticipated. If you made it to the end, I so very much appreciate you. I talked about a lot. If you have questions, feel free to submit those via the form on my website or shoot me an email. If you love the show, be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss any episodes. And if you really love the show, it would make me so very happy if you would leave a rating or a review in iTunes or the podcast app on your phone. Show notes are available at marthaflorence.com slash 35 in case you need any of the links that I talked about and you were driving and you missed them. So it's just my website with a slash and the episode number 35. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.